Welcome to Launched. I'm Charlie Chapman, and today I'm excited to bring you the developer behind the Japanese dictionary and study app, Nihongo, Chris Baselli. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Charlie. Thanks for having me. I was really embarrassed when this happened. So we, we actually got to meet in person, I guess. I guess it's like a month now. It feels like I was going to say last week, and then I realized that's not the case. This has been a crazy uh, kind of month for me. But uh, we actually got to hang out in person, which was really awesome. And as we were hanging out, I referenced something that I thought was a conversation we had had on this podcast because I thought I had had you on this podcast before, but as we were talking, I realized I think I was thinking of one of those early iOS dev happy hour Zoom things during the pandemic. Uh, and this whole time, I've been thinking I've had you on the show, and I actually hadn't yet. Yeah, I think that's right. I remember when you first started. I like, yeah, I think I listened to like the very first episode, and then uh, reached out to you about coming on, and then kind of just we d- didn't end up ever happening. So it was good to good to finally finally get on here yeah usually i'm like oh you've been on my list for forever but you literally haven't been on my list because i thought we had i guess we just talked about your backstory before a little bit and so i had that in my head yeah yeah well we had the ios dev happy hour and i think you just had like sometimes you're just like on twitter hey come join me let's chat you know so we did that i remember too yeah that's really funny well i'm glad to to correct that and uh fill in all the gaps that uh that i don't have in my in my memory. Although now we've gotten to hang out in person. So it's always, it's always funny uh, doing these whenever I've actually met the person because I spent so long never having met people in real life doing this show. Yeah, well, I'm sorry if I bore you with any stories that I already told. No, 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 no. I'm the worst offender of, uh, of repeating stories and everybody listening has probably <laughs> heard me repeating the same stories over and over again. So, so yeah, that's, that's, just, that's just part of the deal here. Um, but before we get into Nihongo and, uh, and your app, I want to give everybody a bit of background into who you are. So the three questions I always ask is, where are you from? Uh, do you have a formal education related to what you do? And then we can talk about your career leading up to Nihongo. Yeah, sure. Um, where I'm from is kind of a complicated <laughs> question. <laughs> uh, I was born in Minnesota, but um, moved to Oregon when I was one year old and lived in Oregon through the end of elementary school um, in a suburb of Portland, Oregon. Then moved to Princeton, New Jersey for uh, middle school and high school. Then I went to California for college and stayed out in the San Francisco Bay Area for a few years after that. Then I moved to Japan for two years um, and then came back from Japan and moved to Vermont, where I lived for eight years up until last summer when I moved back to Japan. So now I currently live in a town called Ikoma in Nara Prefecture, uh, about 45 minutes east of Osaka. Nice, man. It's so funny, like that you like ping ponged off the coasts back and forth yeah. with random, yeah. uh, you know, you jump all the way out to Japan and then back. Like my mom spent her entire life in Minnesota. So uh, up until I was born, like we, we moved to Oregon when I was one year old. And that was the first time my mom had like lived outside Minnesota. So she had tons of family. So we came back to Minnesota every summer, too. So I feel like I have like Minnesota connection too. So yeah, when people ask where I'm from, I'm like, I've lived basically equal parts of my life in Oregon, New Jersey, California, Vermont, and by the end of this stint in Japan, probably Japan as well. So it's just mountain time uh, in terms of North American time zones that you've pretty much avoided? 
I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's next, right? We'll have to figure out where to move when we get back from Japan. Maybe it'll be Colorado or something. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, okay. So you've lived in lots of different places. Um, yeah. So then what about uh, formal education? Uh, yeah. So I um, did study computer science at uh, UC Berkeley. Um, and before that, you know, I had, yeah, I took some, I actually started programming. Um, I took my first programming class in high school. Um, I took a visual basic class. Oh, very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but the thing with visual basic was like, I was really into video games. I mean, that's kind of how I got into programming was through being really into video games. And I took this visual basic class and they were trying to make us, you know, make forms with buttons. I mean, that's kind of what visual basic is, right? It's like make like windows, you know, 98 apps that have buttons and forms you can fill out and stuff like that. But I figured out that you could make a shape and you could make a timer and you could get input from the keyboard. And once I figured out those three things, yeah. I was like, nope, I'm done with, I'm done with all this. <laughs> I'm making Pong, you know, I think that, that was like, <laughs> so, so I think that was my like first thing I made that, 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 I mean, that was just like a really transformative experience for me making pong out of those little shapes and timers and stuff in visual basic because then yeah i just went on and like got super into making games and and everything like that then taking java which was also offered at my high school and started making java applets and making like games that were java applets oh yeah i almost made a joke about java with games but that's right there was an era there where you were either doing like shockwave uh flash or you were making java applets Exactly. So I went, so I knew I didn't, you know, I never learned um, to make things in Flash. So, and Java was what my school offered. So I started making games in Java. And yeah. um, this was the era, yeah, of like web, you know, the, the golden age of web games. So this was like <laughs> um, freearcade.com uh, was my site that I actually, you know, I like played these games at, you know, in high school in the library or whatever. And then once I like made a game, I reached out to them and see if they want to buy it. And they gave me 500 bucks for a game I made. Whoa. Yeah, that was like, so that was really also like, holy, I can actually like make money. You're going to pay me money for this thing I made. Yeah. Wow. That is never, you know, that has never crossed my mind that like, that was an app store. Like, yeah, I, I don't know why I've never really thought, I don't know that I've ever talked to anybody who's sold it, but that was like a huge in industry i guess like yeah yeah that was yeah, a big thing was. a big part of our lives around you know that time exactly yeah it was going to the you know school library and lunch break or whatever and so how what was the distribution for that uh was it basically you were like emailing a binary to him or something yeah that's exactly it i basically just <laughs> emailed a zipped up folder of a java i don't even remember wow uh, dot that's that's pretty wild whatever yeah um was that sorry yeah. this is like gonna go into a little tangent here but was that oh, like fine. an exclusive thing or could you then shop it around to because there was like a million of these sites right yeah i think it was an exclusive thing where i was okay, like that makes sense yeah i was yeah i think i was like giving it giving all the rights to him yeah um and yeah i just remember like when i think back like i I found some of my emails to this guy it was um <laughs> and, and i remember this because i wrote them like I think I just had no idea how to do this. I was like, dear Mr. Derby. <laughs> like, I just remember <laughs> writing that and just being like, oh, like, I had no idea even how to email people. Like, and I sounded like such a, I don't know. I just had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, I was what, whenever I started doing the, 
iOS app store thing. I was already in my late twenties and I didn't know what I was doing. I can't, (laughs) I can't possibly imagine what uh, high school me would have thought, especially if there was $500, like an unbelievable sum of money. Yeah. (laughs) In my brain at that time, man, that's really cool. So that was like, so I had a job at the time. Um, uh, I was just like, um, worked at the library, just like, Mm, you know, re re putting books back on the shelves basically. Which also was kind of interesting because uh, I was studying like I had gotten into like computer science and so I was studying like sorting algorithms. Ah, and so I just yeah. remember like doing this with the books, like <laughs> sorting the books and trying to figure out the optimal way to like sort these. You're manually bubble sorting. <laughs> yeah, but it was like I mean it was incredibly mind numbing. But so this was like one way to make it interesting was to like try to like do the different strategies of sorting these books and, yeah. you know, dealing with the fact that I had some shelf space so I could use that so I could do some sort of, you know, uh, hash sorting or something, you know, <laughs> like, but anyway, yeah, so I like had that job at the time um, and then started making these games and I was like, what am I doing? I could just be programming and making games and selling them. So the next summer I decided like, okay, I'm going to quit my job at the library and just like pump out a few games over the summer Instead, I ended up basically playing Final Fantasy XI all summer. And, like, <laughs> got sucked into an MMO <laughs> and didn't do anything. But um, yeah, yeah. So that was my whole. So that's how I got like super into coding and stuff was just through making games. Like I, I just really loved um, going and trying to figure out like how a diff- engine for a different game could work. So like first I made, you know, I said I made Pong and I made. Um, I made different like puzzle games. Like one of my favorite puzzle games was uh, Tetris Attack, mm. and so um, this was like an old Super Nintendo game. That, um, and so I like kind of made a recreation of that, and that was the first one that I sold to FreeArcade.com. Um, but then I just like I have like twenty different like half finished projects of let me make something that's kind of like Advance Wars. Let me make something that's like try to figure out how to make. Uh, um, uh, like a platformer, I mean, like a Mario style game and like a shmup, like a shooter kind of thing. And then I even started, this was all doing like 2D stuff. So this was just like basically just using Java's like draw an image at XY coordinates, you know. I tried to start doing like a Mario Kart game, but like using that 2D stuff. So like trying to figure out the math of doing those transformations and stuff and sort of realize, okay, now I see why like this is hard and why people make (laughs) game engines for this, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I got really into that. And so then, yeah, decided I wanted to study computer science. And so I went out to California, um, and studied computer science in college. And then coming out of college, um, were you still wanting to try and get like, go into games as an industry or, or did you go right into like, you know, software development kind of typical? I was really struggling with that because I still really liked games a lot and, I basically had gotten an internship while I was in college at a company called Big Fix. And they were like an enterprise software company. They were building basically tools for companies that have, say, like 100,000 computers spread all over the world. Um, You have the ability to sort of get visibility into what software is installed on all of them, like properties, like how much storage space and RAM and um, energy settings was a big thing they did. And like, yeah, like fleet management kind of stuff. Yeah, fleet management thing, but on a really huge scale, like across, yeah, like a hundred, like Walmart was a customer or something like that, you know, like a hundred yeah, thousand yeah. computers, all of the like point of sale machines and stuff like that. And so uh, you could basically manage all them and then like take actions on them. So um, you could, 
yeah, like write scripts that would run on all the machines that fit certain criteria. And the big sort of innovation that they did, I mean, this is a company that was founded in, I think, the late 90s. So I think at the time, the like key differentiator for them was that um, all of the processing happened on the endpoint, on the client, like desktop machine or something instead of... Instead of like reporting, hey, here's all the properties of this machine. Here's all this information. Now you go to the server and you run, you know, stuff on the server that figures out which ones to target. They were doing their processing on the endpoints, which means it scales with the number of devices on the network. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Exactly. So it ended up being a really, I mean, I can't say good enough things about working at Big Fix. Like, um, and and the the you know follow up to this is I ended up joining them after college um i was kind of i applied to some game companies and then but then ended up just deciding to continue with them instead and you know i i one i feel like um there's there were really interesting problems to solve they had a bunch of domain specific languages they had a language called relevance which was their like query language and a language called action script so i actually had like at one point a job where we were exp- extending into like mobile devices and I basically got to like rewrite the um, the engine that runs like relevance at this like domain specific language they had. And so I got to kind of like do all the research of like how to do that. And I built a programming language Dang. Like, runtime basically like um, using getting into like tokenizers and parsers and, and yeah, yeah. Syntax trees and all this cool stuff. So there's really cool problems to solve. It was also a massive distributed system, effectively, because you had all these endpoints that were running things, and then they had to communicate with each other and communicate up, you know, the hierarchy in these complicated network environments and things. Um, so really, yeah, interesting sort of computer science problems to solve. And then um, I also feel like the people there were amazing, and that was really hard to leave. Yeah, that's that's one of those things that will what's the word i'm looking for it's like a bomb over so many other issues pay could be bad the future of the company could be bad the work can be boring but if the people are kind and enjoyable to be around it's kind of like well maybe i'll stick it out for longer like i not saying that was the case there but it's like you know i there's all those stats about like your direct manager being the most important like the biggest factor in somebody actually staying or leaving yeah, totally makes sense because it is all about it's the people you're spending a huge chunk of your life with. Yeah, you know, every exactly. Every yeah, it's it's it really is a like you're signing up for a yeah, it's like a relationship with these people that you have to live with them essentially. Yeah. And having that be toxic can ruin everything else being perfect and having them be amazing can really make it can really make up for a lot of other issues uh, at any sort of company. Yeah, definitely. So they were, yeah, just like, yeah, kind and funny, and it was a really great place to work. And they were also really just into the craft of, like, software engineering. So I like to say, or I like, you know, the way I kind of think about it when I look back on it is I learned computer science in college, but I really earned, learned software engineering at my mm, time. Yeah, like, yeah. Just the craft of that. People were into, like, have you know, reading um, blogs on software engineering, like Joel on Software was a big one yeah. that, you know, we talked a lot about, and, like... Um, I can't even Raymond Chang, I think was one and like, um, yeah, just a lot of really good blogs and books and, and, um, and sort of commiserating on that. Um, so I feel like I just, yeah, like became a much better software engineer and learned sort of that whole field 
from my time there. So I think it was the right call, but I was also that whole time feeling like, man, I've really wanted to do games for a really long time. That's kind of what got me into this originally. Um, so when, um, so I basically stayed at um, Big Fix for a couple years after college and then um, wanted to go uh, live in Japan, um, especially like Justin, my husband, wanted to go live in Japan and um, we wanted to go like have that kind of adventure together of living somewhere outside the United States. Has Japan always been like specifically a place? Is it because of the game connection or? Yeah. I mean, it kind of starts from that, right? Like I started teach, uh, taking Japanese in high school. My high school is, you know, um, actually offered Japanese classes. So yeah, I had taken cool. like French. Yeah, it was really cool. I, I had taken French in middle school, but didn't really feel any strong connection to that got to high school, they offered Japanese and, you know, I was super into video games and anime and yeah. you know, stuff like that. So it was like, if I have a choice between French, which I have kind of no connection to and no real drive to learn with Japanese, you know, and the thing was, if I really am honest with myself about looking back on it, it was really because I wanted to play the, like the next Final Fantasy when it came out <laughs> in Japan and not have to wait for it to come out in the US. Like, that was probably like reason number one for learning Japanese. how much how much did that uh yeah that like fomo uh play into you know the trajectory of your entire life oh uh, my god yeah it was huge yeah which it's also ironic because now games all come out worldwide at the same time so yeah like, no <laughs> um that's awesome but yeah i mean that was definitely like the original impetus to go learn japanese justin and i both applied to the jet program um, which is like the program run through the Japanese government where you can go and teach Japanese at a Japanese high school or a Japanese public school. You teach Japanese or teach English? Did I say teach Japanese? I meant teach English. Okay. Yeah. 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 Just making sure. Yeah. 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 So you're teaching English. You're basically like an, they call it an ALT or assistant language teacher. Um, and you basically go to a, a Japanese school that they assign you to, which you don't get any choice over. And then, um, uh, you go and you work in a, in a school, um, and, uh, teach English to, to Japanese kids. So we both applied to this. Um, he got in and I didn't, uh, but we were able to basically, so I basically decided to quit my job at Big Fix. Um, we'd actually gotten acquired by IBM. So now it was IBM. So I wasn't super crazy about working for IBM. And so, it just and, and not on like a philosophical level or anything. IBM is fine, but I was just uh, it was kind of not like a startup feeling. Yeah, exactly. Startup, it, yeah. It, yeah, I've I've been through multiple of these where it's like it's not that the big company's bad. It's just no longer necessarily uh, the type of company I enjoy being at in the same way. So, yeah, so I, I decided to quit that job and just this was going to be my moment where I go and become an independent game developer and. I was going to take that time to like go live in Japan and Justin was going to be working and I was going to be at home doing being an independent game developer. Did you know what that meant yet in terms of platform or type of game or anything like that? I, it was probably iOS. Well, <laughs> there's another story. Okay, there's a couple of stories to unpack there. <laughs> Let's do it. So my first game I ever made or the first app I ever made for iOS is a game called Pipe Drop. Still on the app store. Still, okay, I was about it. to say, I think I've seen that on the app store. It was like, basically, it's just like a puzzle game, um, kind of inspired by like a cross between, if you ever played um, Pipe Dreams, 
like one of those old Windows 95. Like, I know that name. Or Pipe Mania, it's sometimes called. Um, it's like basically it was probably like on a floppy ring. disk that was passed around exactly. at some point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically you like arrange these pipes and then it starts, they start to fill like there's a spigot. Okay. And it yeah. Starts yeah. To kind yeah. Of like water starts to fill and you have to kind of like keep putting the pieces down to make sure that the water doesn't get to the end and then you lose. So I basically made a game that was a cross between that and like Tetris. So instead of the water just slowly filling up and you have to kind of keep ahead of it, pieces drop from the top of the screen, um, including oh, some spigots and some regular paths. And then basically you make a path, connect it to a spigot, hold your finger down on the spigot to open the water, and then that clears all of the blocks that were part of the path that you made. So it like makes those go away. So you have to kind of keep up with it to try to keep it from filling up to the top. Um, so that game I made and released in 2011... So this was like okay. pretty early iOS days, early enough that it got, you know, featured by Apple for the first week it was out. Back when that was like amazing. Yeah, it felt felt amazing. Um, it was like a 99 cent download. So I, I think I made like a thousand bucks in the first week. Like, OK, this is it. This is the path. This is what I can do. I can quit my job and go do this full time. Yeah. You know, I just got to, you know, do a little better with the, you know, marketing and stuff and you know all that stuff that's not a big deal you know i'll figure that out <laughs> um and so that was yeah that was my idea was i was going to go and start doing that the i also went for it and bought the ouya developer kit or do you yes the this is the android <laughs> box uh that you plugged the into android, your tv and yeah, it was going to be a game android console box. it was that a kickstarter yeah it was a kickstarter so, yeah, that was I was like super excited about that. I mean, like everybody was because it yeah. felt like this is well, it. We're going to have the app store, but as a game console, you know, exactly. Like I preferred game. I preferred console games. I preferred playing on my yeah. TV, but the main consoles felt totally inaccessible. So as like an indie right. developer, this was like, yeah, I mean, this was even maybe really early days of like digital downloads, I think, you know, so so. It was becoming more accessible to get on like PlayStation or whatever, but as just an individual, it wasn't really. Yeah, because like so, uh, Xbox Arcade was kind of a thing, but I think yeah. that was still a they reach out to you, not you reach out to them kind of situation. Yeah, so this felt like a guaranteed, like okay, you can get on their platform. They had a deal where like if you were part of the first, you know, thousand or hundred developers to sign up or something, you'd like they'd guarantee you a spot on their yeah you know, App Store page or whatever. So I went for that too, and so I like did start doing some development aimed at at Ouya. Um, but basically, what happened when I got to Japan was I kind of hated it. I kind of like like living in it, Japan. No, no, no. Sorry, living in Japan was great, but well, okay. Living in Japan was. Um, I arrived in August. And I don't know if you know about August in Japan, but it's like that steamy, hot, steamy yeah. hot. This was like sh- soon enough after um, the Fukushima disaster, too, that mm-hmm. they were like low. They had turned off, you know, after that happened, they turned off all the nuclear power plants in the country. Right. Um, so they were there were like big campaigns about like not really using your air conditioner. Oh, so, man. And I was like had just gotten there and didn't want to like do the wrong thing and everything. So yeah. I was like sitting there 
Justin was going to work every day. I was sitting there in this Japanese apartment, knowing nobody, not being super confident in the language, like in this steamy apartment. So, um, so that was rough in its own way. But I also just found that um, I didn't really enjoy the game development as much as I thought I would. And and it's funny because I had this experience of like making all these games in high school and like playing around, like I mentioned, of playing around with making different genres and stuff like that. And then I made Pipe Drop and I enjoyed doing that. But when I made Pipe Drop, there weren't any game engines yet, right? Like this mm. was Pipe Drop is literally like UI image views being manually wow, like okay. the yeah, yeah. it's being manipulated. Which is more similar to what you were doing uh in high school. Yeah. Exactly. It was more similar to that. But by the time I get to, you know, moving to Japan, Unity exists, you know, there's game engines are a thing, Coke, you know, Cocos 2D, there's like a whole bunch of things have happened. And at that point, the like engineer in me, the like, don't repeat yourself, don't, you know, waste time rebuilding the wheel. Part of me was like, couldn't feel good about like just building an engine on my own, because what's the point? Like, I should be using these tools that already exist that have like done all that. So, but then I go and use those tools and all of a sudden the programming becomes a lot kind of less interesting to me. It's more art direction and dealing it's with the art frameworks. Direction, it's game design, which is fun. And I enjoy game design and I, I like that, but kind of found that when the challenging programming side of it was gone, it wasn't enough to sustain me as a, like hopefully a full-time job. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I ended up, um, yeah. It, and it was really hard too. Cause this is like, this had been my kind of my dream since like, high school of like becoming a your identity is wrapped up in it right a little bit my identity was totally wrapped up in it which i bet a significant amount of people listening to this probably could see themselves feeling a similar way to like being an indie it's like how often are you thinking about like man if i can get this this app going maybe i could do this full time you know maybe i can get these two things moving or get revenue here but yeah whenever you know when the dog uh, catches the mailman or catches their tail or whatever metaphor you want to use like is that is that really the life you'd want and you you don't really know until you get there i guess and you kind of got there and, yeah and then and then what <laughs> exactly i got there and then was like wait like actually i don't want to do this <laughs> so that was a really hard re- you know um, realization to go through um, and I mean, to be honest, I ended up be- getting, uh, sinking into probably the worst depression of my life, just being alone in a new country, or not alone in a new country, but Justin was there, but he was working every day. So during the day, kind of alone, trying to realize this dream that I had, but it wasn't really working and it was hot and <laughs> all yeah, that. That, so, yeah, um, that layered on top of everything that, else. <laughs> that, that didn't really help, you know? So, um, I ended up deciding to um uh go and start studying japanese at a japanese language school um and so i moved to japan in august and basically that january then i started doing like a full-time japanese language classes there um so and this justin encouraged me to do this and i can't thank him enough for that because it was it really pulled me out um of yeah. a deep funk it gave you gave you um, some purpose like you had yeah, a driving goal. And, yeah, yeah. 
Um, I met a ton of really cool people because the thing about like a Japanese language school is these are international students from all over、mm. the world that are you know all coming into Japan and then going to these classes. So met a lot of interesting people.、Um, helped with my visa situation. <laughs>、uh, yeah, Japan didn't recognize same-sex marriage, so and still doesn't. But at the time, I couldn't get a visa through that. Oh, how did? Yeah, so were you on like a travel? Not to, I mean, we don't have to get into specifics, but were you on like a travel visa or? Yeah, I was on a travel visa.、Um, I did. I came in on a travel visa. Switched to the school at you know visa. I was trying originally、mm. to maybe do some work with、um, IBM, you know, just like a, a, enough that maybe they'd sponsor me because they have like、yeah. a Japanese branch, so I could get that. But that didn't work out. So got the visa as a student. And then, I mean, this is a whole story. But over the, over the following two years, basically, like, was a student for a while, then went on a tourist visa for a while, then basically left the country and came back in to get an extension、oh, of my tourist That's visa. That's so stressful. Then, yeah, yeah, and then went back to school again. You know, I kind of just bounced around between different visa situations. Yeah, so I I went to this Japanese language school、um, and just kind of yeah got into that, made friends, had some purpose there, and. Then started to like get really into studying Japanese again, and in studying Japanese,、um, I had like a dictionary app that I used、um, to look words up, and、uh, I had a flashcard app that I was using.、Um, so the dictionary app I was using was called Emiwa. The flashcards app I was using was called、uh, Flashcards Deluxe, and they're both good apps.、Um, but I really wanted to be like studying these words that I was seeing now that I was living in Japan. And so I would、um, look up a word in Imiwa, and then、um, end up like making a flashcard by hand in my flashcards app to、um, to study, and、um, that got kind of like a pain. You know, that got was really tedious, and that was kind of painful to go through. So I ended up kind of falling back to like studying from pre-made flashcard decks that I found on the internet.、Um, mm. Yeah. And I ended up studying like you know t- you know ten thousand com- most common words in Japanese and things like that, and it struck me when I was doing that that I was like here I am like I'm surrounded by all this actual native Japanese I could be learning and I'm still studying the exact same way that I did in the U S.、Um, you know from pre-made decks like this doesn't really make any sense so so I tried to、um, my first sort of attempt at solving this. Was、uh, actually to just kind of like connect those two apps, and I figured out that、um, Emiwa had an export function that you could like export the, your dictionary history, the list of words that you looked up in the dictionary,、um, and their、uh, export format that they could export to Dropbox.、Um, this was before iCloud, so you could do export to Dropbox.、Um, so I would have it export to Dropbox. I had my laptop sitting open on my, you know, little Japanese, you know, desk in my tiny little Japanese apartment. I'd just leave my laptop open all day,、um, and I configured、uh, a folder action. That's a macOS feature that you can. A folder action is a macOS feature that I think still exists, but you can basically set it to run an Apple script or an Automator action or something whenever it detects a new file going in a folder. Yeah. So I would have it like that set up on that Dropbox folder. It would. Trigger a script to run that would convert the dictionary history file to the flashcard f-、uh, format that my flashcard app accepts because the flashcard <laughs> app has an had import. an import functionality. <laughs> so, 
so I basically like, yeah, made it so that I could kind of do what I wanted to do. I'd, I'd hit export, you know, be sitting on the train, you know, doing, looking up stuff or whatever, hit export to Dropbox, wait 30 seconds. And, you know, the, my uh, script would run, it would put it in another Dropbox folder and I could go, you know, my flashcard app and 30 seconds later, download that and have my flashcards. That's awesome. Um, this is where I'm just <laughs> like, man, imagine if shortcuts existed and they supported it at that time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you see where this is going. Yeah. Maybe Nihongo, <laughs> maybe Nihongo never would have existed. That's if true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was the birth of Nihongo was that I was just like, there's got to be a better way. Wouldn't it be awesome if my dictionary app could just automatically make flashcards for me and I could just do that in one app. And so that was like the like version 0.1, you know, version of Nihongo was just dictionary that could that could create flashcards automatically from the words I looked up. And I started using that to study every day. Were you so were you thinking was this like I'm going to was this just the next step of your crazy Rube Goldberg machine was like build an app and it's just for yourself? Or were you like, ooh, this is something that like there could be a market for and I could sell? No, it was definitely the former. It was definitely like, this is just a better way for me to do this for myself. <laughs> I love that. Like <laughs> it just keeps getting more and more uh, like polished and nice, but you're still just like, this is just for yourself. Yeah, no, I mean, it's absolutely how I approached it. It was like, this was just for me. Um, I would go and study, yeah, using it. And the, yeah, because like, I had a whole routine where I'd like do my flashcards during on the train. And then um, I had kind of a tradition of going out. There was like a little beach near our, near where we lived, a beach onto the Osaka Bay, basically. Um, and I would go and I was trying to read through Harry Potter in Japanese. And so oh, I wow. had a tradition of I'd like do my flashcards and read some Harry Potter and like get some pick up some vocabulary from that and put it in in as new flashcards. And then I'd like end up just finding two or three things during that whole process of like things I wished worked differently or something. So then, you know, after I was done, I'd go to a cafe and, you know, make some changes and then have a new build that I put on my phone. And then the next day, you know, do the same thing, but with these new, you know, fixes in it. And That's awesome. Had you done like traditional ios development at that point uh or was it the game development kind of was your ios experience the game development was my only ios experience i guess but you were using ui kit you were saying initially yeah i was using yeah. i was using ui kit and <laughs> but pipe drop is literally i didn't understand what a view controller was or what right. its role or why this was a thing i think i really was even dismissive of it like why do they have this extra thing of view controller? Like, I don't need that, you know? So I think I had a view controller that's like 10 lines of code or something that basically just put in a single UI view called like game view and then draw everything in there. The entire logic of the game is inside this game view, which is a subclass of UI view. <laughs> so I would say I was doing UI kit. I'm doing air quotes here. I was like doing, yeah, UI kit. I knew UI kit. Um, but uh, no, hadn't done anything real. So yeah, I learned UI kit on Nihongo. Um, and uh, and so, you know, sometimes I find some of the deeper parts of my code base that I haven't touched in a long time. And I'm just like cringing at like, yeah, because it's all Objective-C too. And it's like, I just did not know what I was doing at all. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I was just like developing that. Um, 
Yeah, totally for myself. And it just became a tool that I was using, yeah, for studying in class. So I just, you know, kind of did that approach where I had, you know, um, uh, what do you call it, like a homing bullet or something, but basically like build the single path that I really wanted. And it was like the main user mm. flow of the app and then start hanging things off of it. Yeah. Um, so I started improving the dictionary and doing some other ideas that I had about how dictionaries could be better than the ones I'd used and started doing things with the flashcards and how can I make the flashcards better? But the, at all, at this point, it still really is just like for you. Like, did it even have like a seven yeah. screen or any of this other stuff? No, I mean, I think at some point, so I think I started developing it in like January of 2013, um, when I, right around when I, or maybe February, like right around when I started studying at the Japanese language school, I used it for myself. And I basically like, I think I did about a full year of Japanese language classes. And so I think by about a year later, I was honestly coming out of it thinking, you know what, like, I got so much out of this tool that I built, like, um, I think I learned more Japanese splitting my time between developing this app and and studying Japanese than I would have if I had just focused on studying Japanese. Yeah, I kind of built a hobby around it. Yeah, yeah, I built a hobby around it, and it was just like, I felt like this was a total valid use of my time just for the goal of myself learning Japanese. Like I felt like it was a better use of my time to build the better tool than that fit the way that I wanted to study and fit my brain better. This episode of launched is brought to you by revenue cat. Revenue cat makes in-app subscriptions simple. Their platform lets you focus on improving your app rather than getting bogged down in subscription infrastructure. RevenueCat provides a back-end wrapper around Apple's StoreKit and Google Play billing to simplify the implementation and upkeep of in-app purchases. RevenueCat provides out-of-the-box analytics for over 15 key subscription metrics like monthly recurring revenue, lifetime value, retention, and more. RevenueCat also offers pre-built integrations with best-in-class tools like Amplitude, AppsFlyer, MixPanel, and Firebase, so you can connect in-app purchase events in minutes in a couple of clicks. Customers have been able to cut down on their engineering backlog, better understand customer behavior, and grow faster by switching to RevenueCat. See why companies like Notion, Visco, and PhotoRoom use RevenueCat to power in-app subscriptions. Learn more at RevenueCat.com. And our thanks to RevenueCat for sponsoring this episode of Launched. You've been doing this for a year. When does it transition yeah. to like, maybe I could actually sell this? Yeah, probably about that time, I think. Um... And I don't remember like a specific moment. I think I probably always thought I would publish it. Like, I don't think I was ever just going to keep it for myself yeah. just because I had been through the experience with pipe drop and I saw, you know, making a thousand bucks off of that. I was like, okay, yeah, like I could publish this. And so I, I mean, I think I started in like early 2013. It launched on the app store in July of 2014. So it was about a year and a half. Wow. Okay. So I think. Um, you know, I think, and I think some of the last things I was getting in was, you know, actually ha figuring out what features to put behind the paywall and building a paywall and, you know, all that kind of stuff and a settings, settings screen. <laughs> so were you, what was the business model initially? It was a, a one-time in-app purchase to unlock the flashcards and uh, clipping section, which I don't think I've talked about clippings, but that's basically the ability to like copy and paste text into the app and then have it like split it out individual individual words um, because mm. in Japanese that's a hard problem because there's no spaces 
um, and automatically make a flashcard deck from that. How did you do that? Is that a like known problem set for splitting up words with no spaces? Yeah, there's a whole area of like natural language processing around that called tokenization. Wow. Um, oh, okay. I mean, it's like it's called tokenization even with when there is spaces or commas or stuff usually, yeah. right? But it sounds a lot more yeah. complicated. <laughs> it's a called tokenization. And yeah, but it's just a much harder problem in Japanese, right? And Chinese too, because Chinese doesn't have spaces either. Yeah. You know, the route I should have gone was using one of the existing things. Like Mecab is was the popular one at the time. Um, what, libraries? Existing open source libraries for this. But I ended up... The trick is that I really wanted it to be really tightly integrated with the dictionary and mm. the database that I was using for the dictionary like wouldn't have the same exact tokens like it wouldn't be a one-to-one -one mapping with the tokens that Mecab came up with so I ended up building my own tokenizer that was built around the tokens being exactly the tokens from the dictionary database also, it, just in this conversation, I get the feeling uh, you enjoy the the science bit of computer <laughs> science every once in a while, too. Yeah. Yeah. That was a fun, definitely a fun problem to solve um, and uh, or to solve, quote unquote. There's no like I I, I want to I'm, I'm getting close to actually replacing that system. Finally, the same Ooh. basic bones bones of that has been there since 2014. And it's time. It's time to redo it. OK, so you built this thing for yourself. Uh, eventually, you know, got it kind of tidied up so you could put it out in the store. Yeah. It has a, it's free with a in-app purchase to unlock some of the features. Then what, how did that, how did that launch itself go? Yeah. Um, how did that launch go? I had, I launched it and did, um, like a hacker news. The big thing that was successful was a hacker news post about it. Um, that you I made or made. somebody else made? That I made, yeah. Okay. Just like, yeah, that I made that was just kind of introducing it. And it got yeah. a good amount of engagement and I think ended up on the front page of Hacker News for a little bit. So so that was... Very nice. Um, yeah, so that, was, that felt really, really good. Um, and I got like some of the people that were developers of some other, you know, Japanese apps, you know, commenting about it. And um, I think... Uh, I was proud of the the like landing page I made for it. People thought was nice. And so I think I got some, you know, I think that helped a lot too. Um, I, but then beyond that, uh, I think that th that was kind of the main thing that was successful about the launch. I think I tried, you know, other sort of mar basic marketing and, you know, product hunt and things like that, but it never really took off. I'm, I'm curious. And actually I don't, we don't normally make, calls out to the audience here but i would love to hear from somebody who's had product hunt help them it feels like Ooh, a thing that people yeah. do to do but like the more i think about it like thinking through and the amount of people i've talked to on the show i don't know of anybody who's been like and product hunt really you know drove a lot of traffic for us like i don't know yeah. it feels like it's kind of on everybody's checklist because we see everybody else do it but yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm really curious about that. Not I'm not trying to throw shade on Product Hunt or anything, but it's just hearing you say that, it kind of triggered this thing that's been gestating in my mind for a while of like, is that really like what is this thing? And does it actually yeah. matter? I would say for me it hasn't, but yeah. You've talked to more yeah. people <laughs> who've launched things than I have. 
Well, yeah, a specific subset of people anyway. Anyway, that was yeah. a, a side. I am curious, though. I would love to hear if somebody... Well, and specifically in your subset, that would be interesting. Yeah, in your yeah. subset of people you talk to. Um, but basically, I launched it with, um, you know, I was originally going to do it at $8 and then was convinced to go down to $4 because that felt like too much, you know. Um, and launched and had a little bit of good feedback, but then it was pretty quiet. Um, I also, I launched basically one month before I moved back to the United States. So I had mm. a job lined up. So I kind of wasn't super, you know, tuned into it for a bit or like I had other priorities. So I kind of just let it go up and. And you were kind of, it sounds like you weren't thinking of it like this is a long-term business so much as I made a tool and now I can put the tool out there and then I can make some money off of that tool that I made, but it's like people buy it, they have it. That's kind of kind of the end of the story in terms of the way you were thinking about it yeah like it could be you know a nice you know it'd be nice if i made a little bit of money off of it but um you know in planning out my next sort of life moves um i went through the same thing i applied to a bunch of game companies again i thought about going and doing games and um also was just looking at um i ended up getting invited to join a startup that um some of my friends from big fix some people that i worked with at big fix oh nice uh, were starting so I um, almost I got to the final round of interviews with Media Molecule, the people oh. that make uh, Little Big Planet, yeah, and Dream, yeah, the PlayStation uh, games. Yeah. So um, so yeah, I it, I was down to like I was one of three final candidates for a position there and didn't get selected. But I think mm. if I had gotten that, I probably would have taken that and gone and worked at Media Molecule. Um, so I didn't get that. So I ended up going and working, going to this startup that I, um, my friends were starting. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I think like going indie on Nihongo was not in my, was not something I was thinking about at all. Um, partially cause I had used a lot of money living in Japan and not working for two years. So <laughs> I couldn't really afford to yeah, yeah. do that. Yeah. So I went and worked for this company or, uh, this startup called subspace. Um, and just kind of had Nihongo on the side. Subspace was pretty cool. This was um, a... We basically built a, a fork of Chromium. So it was a web browser. It was a fork mm -hmm. of Chromium. Um, and for people who don't know, Chromium is like the open source um, core of Chrome. So Chrome is built from Chromium along with a bunch of other web browsers like Edge and... Um, or I presume Arc. Edge is built on Chromium. Now. Arc, yeah. yeah, Arc. So... So anyway, so we built our own web browser that was based on Chromium. Um, and the idea was that all of the file I.O., um, anything that ever touched disk was encrypted using, um, you know, a, a cryptographic scheme based on your uh, subspace password. Um, so this included like temporary files or caches, things like that. Any downloads that you made in the app, anything like that. Um, and uh, and then you would have a sort of VPN like, pro you know, proxying component that you would install in your company, like this is enterprise aimed software. So right. inside your company's internal network, you would install this little thing, this um, uh, sort of VPN like component. And then when you launch subspace, it would automatically connect to this VPN. So everything that was going through subspace was going through the VPN. So basically the idea was with those two components in place, you could, navigate to any sort of internal sensitive documents on your internal network, download them to your computer, 
And even if your computer has a virus on it or something, it can't get at it because the only way it ever sits on disk on your computer is in an encrypted format. Right. Um, and then the way you could actually make that useful was the fact that um, Google had been investing a ton of things in making in um, for the purpose of making Chromebooks be really useful. They have all these apps that run effectively within Chrome. So right. They have Using local storage. Do- exactly. So they have an yeah, office document yeah. editor. And we can use that office document editor to open up this, you know, we can expose our encrypted files to Chromium internally and um, and to uh, Chrome apps. So you could actually edit with all the tools that they make for Chromebooks. You could actually use to edit your files in this encrypted browser that runs on a regular, you know, computer. Um, so, it was, yeah, really cool. Um Cool idea, uh, really interesting. Again, like it, just a totally different kind of challenge. Chromium is a, a massive C plus plus yeah. Um, so worked with them, um, and a bunch of people I really liked. Uh, and then um, we got acquired by Box, the cloud. Oh yeah, file sharing yeah yeah. So um, so then I went and worked for Box. Um, and during that time, again, yeah, Nihongo was kind of something I, I mostly put on the back burner. I did do at the time the, um, custom keyboards support in, in iOS came out. That okay. was like the big iOS feature. And so I did take, like, I had built a kanji, um, sort of keyboard for Nihongo. And so I like pulled that out into a custom keyboard to try to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I had like some little bits that I was still kind of poking at. It was like a fun little playground app, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then, yeah, I was working at Box, um, and at Box I did uh, a whole bunch of different things. Like I came in with this sort of security team, you know, acquisition, so I was kind of in the security realm there. Um, I did some work on like encryption in their iOS app. I did some work on doing, actually did like some really interesting deep dive into like Windows uh um, private APIs to like detect whether they're like file, no, file vault is Mac, um, whatever their encryption sort of equivalent to file yeah. vault is. They have some private APIs that let you detect all the state of all of that without needing, um, administrative privileges, but that they don't allow, they don't give to anybody else. So it was like digging in and trying to do that. Anyway, like a whole bunch of kind of stuff with security, and then they made their, box drive mac app and i went and was like worked on the box you know um the desktop team to go work on that um and then i worked on their web app for a year just to kind of do something different (laughs) um and i worked on uh yeah another like we were going to do this inner deep integration of box drive into windows 10 and Hmm. so i went and worked on that um, and was actually like leading a team of engineers that were based out of um, Buenos Aires and Uruguay. Oh, and cool! So, yeah, so that was like so. Basically, my time at Box was like a ton of different things, yeah, yeah. And a ton of different like getting exposure to a ton of different teams and getting comfortable with like working across a ton of different teams. And honestly, like I think that was part of what made me comfortable jumping to the indie world was just because I had, like, experience with, like, the security stuff with, uh, you know, a bunch of performance work, localization, like, iOS, desktop. Like, I feel like I just had all of these different engineering hats, 
and like build systems and stuff like that, that I was able to then take. And when you're an indie, you're kind of doing everything. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, so being comfortable jumping between these different domains was a big part of that. So yeah, so I like was working at Box. That was around the time when I started to like, I think I just had a big break with Nihongo. Um, and that's when I started to think about Nihongo as like a potential actual future path. What do you mean you had a big break? So the first big break I had was actually um, with, it, it started to get a ton of traction in China, um, which was really surprising to me because this is an English to Japanese dictionary. And it was, was it only localized in English at the time? It was only localized in English. Okay. So I was like, what, why in the world is this getting downloads and, and purchases in China? It turns out, like, I finally did a bunch of digging, and I found that there was this post on um, a Chinese website that was, it's kind of like an equivalent to Quora or something. Um, okay. Just yeah, like yeah. Q&A website where you can upvote questions and upvote answers. Um, and someone had asked on there, just like, you know, what's, uh, in asking, I can't remember the exact wording of it, but what's what are good iOS Japanese dictionaries? Or what's the best tools for learning Japanese on iOS? Or something like that. And somebody wrote up... Um, this huge post that with like images, like screenshots and things like this, that was an entire guide of basically how to use Nihongo to like look up the word that you're looking up in Japanese. And once you get to the point where you get to a, the English definition, you could run a um, workflow. This was before Apple bought workflow and turned it into shortcuts. Mm, so this, yeah, yeah. you could run a, a workflow that would machine translate the English into Chinese. This sounds like somebody doing somebody in China doing exactly what you were doing uh, that led up to Nihongo, where it's like, yeah, <laughs> you found a good tool and you like found this way to sort of uh, force it into whatever use case you needed in their case, making it work with Chinese. That's so cool. I never I never made that connection before, but you're totally right. They were doing <laughs> they were doing the same thing. But you recognized it. And then as I'm. Um, Assuming you're about to tell us, you kind of capitalized on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So first of all, I was just, I mean, I never would have thought to do this because the idea to me that people would take machine translated English into Chinese, machine translated definitions of Japanese words, translated from, machine translated into Chinese. The, the idea that this would be actually like not total gibberish and not and meaningful at all to anybody, that kind of blew my mind. I couldn't figure out any way to get actual Chinese definitions of the Japanese words. So that would have been my like first thing I would want to do is like yeah. localize the app and then get Chinese definitions. But what I could do was I could do the pr a pre-processing step where I actually machine translate everything into Chinese ahead of time and then can actually integrate it in like a first class way where you, it works with search. You can search in Chinese and the words will show up. Um, right. And you can actually like... I presented nicely where you can see the Chinese and it says machine translated from this English, you know, so you can still kind of have that context. Okay. So, so just to like to back up a second. So you, you saw that this was happening and you're like, all right, I can do this, you know, natively and at least provide the same quality of translation for them, but natively in the app. So your first step yeah. was, was also doing the machine translated uh let's see we're we're doing machine translated english into chinese 
and it's mapping to the same Japanese definitions. You look up a Japanese word, and now instead of just seeing English, which you have to run your shortcut to look up or your workflow, now you see an actual Chinese, and the Chinese is machine translated, so you know your mileage may vary. But yeah, and so you have a you had some sort of label on that then yeah. to like clarify that it was machine translated. Yeah, that's right. I said yeah, I said machine translated. And uh, and included the English as well, just because I feel like that's useful for people to see. Where yeah. If they have any English, they can at least kind of understand why they're seeing what they're seeing. So that was that was like the first thing you did. You released that. And then how did like did that move the needle at all? Did people seem to respond to that? Yeah, it did. Um, and honestly, until about two years ago, maybe China was my biggest market. Um, so wow. like that was what really yeah, really took Nihongo into something where, like, kind of from the level of, like, the first three years, maybe, that it was out, I think it was kind of, like, no more than a few hundred dollars a year kind of income. Um, and then all of a sudden, it, like, went up, you know, to, like, five times that or so. I think I was hit, started hitting, like, $1,000, you know, a, or $2,000 a year or something like that. So it was, like, clearly just, like, um, an, an order of magnitude shift. And I guess that's, like it makes sense when you think about you know in terms of large markets for the app store and then you know the big ones being like the kind of european market the north american market and then i guess it it's china right like india isn't as big i mean it's a big population but yeah. it's not as big on the apple app store i don't think currently still but china yeah. is is especially in more recent times is really big but like which of those major markets is going to have more people looking to translate to Japanese? It probably is yeah. China. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. And I mean, it's also it was scary just because it's like, I don't know. How, I don't know how to market this in China. Or yeah. Like where, yeah. What to do, you know, um, it was definitely much more comfortable to just stay in the English speaking world. Um, but, uh, you know, so I tried to seize that opportunity and it ended up being way more work than I expected because I had I guess I kind of had this sense of ah localization all you got to do is just like <laughs> replace your strings with some NS localized string macros and you're, you're good to go but it was like way more than that so now when you when you localize in Chinese you've obviously done this I did this like a long time ago in a different world and so I'm trying to remember all this but like they have character sets that are still like left to right correct yeah. or yeah. not character sets but like the the way it's written is left yeah. to right so you didn't have to do the is left to right yeah the like right to left stuff or i mean nothing's vertical right so you didn't have to like change your layout that much other than maybe words were different lengths yeah and chinese honestly in terms of word length chinese is the easiest chinese is the shortest like it's oh, okay it takes up like no space um but i also at the same time did german and Oh. I think I started with German and Spanish, maybe, or something like that. I tried German's to like, kind of the, you know, the famously extremely long uh, <laughs> yeah. length words, Well, right? and that was on purpose, right? If I'm going to do the localization, I should make this, I should take the time to actually, like, start with a long language and make it, make sure Done I Done like a true it. engineer. Let's, let's test the edges. <laughs> exactly, yeah. German is the edge case of, of language, yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> there, but there was, I still don't have any right to left languages, um, so it's just left, right. But it was just like integrating 
things like um, in in German, there's some of the database has native written German translations of or definitions of the English words. Like database I'm using isn't just English. It's like English, German, French, Spanish, Russian. Like there's a bunch of languages in it, but they don't have as much coverage as English. So mm. I developed a whole system of like having you know the the native translations where I could, but then machine translating the ones that I can't. And then um, setting up uh, all the infrastructure to like automatically, as they add new entries to the, you know, dictionary, um, machine translate the pieces that need to be machine translated and store those somewhere. So you're so using you're using like a third time. party database then for the the language sets. Yeah. So the main or the definitions. Yeah, the main definitions come from um, JMDict. Uh, which is an open source project that's been around since I think the late 90s. It's basically this professor at an Australian university um, who developed this project, and it's like a community open source um, database of Japanese definitions. And and the you know primary language is English, um, but he still works on it to this day. Like he's still the maintainer of this um, database, and. Um, and you can go and contribute to it and make corrections and things like that. Nice. There's a team of team of editors, so they you know that review all the submissions and things like that. Um, but it's a very active project. And then he like basically finds similar projects around the world in different languages, and then works with them to integrate their data so that they have like infrastructure set up where like the German project, um, Japanese dictionary project, uh, has like a daily dump where they translate their in, their stuff into the format of jamdict so that you can have like one one xml file where all this data yeah. comes from in all the different languages okay that's cool so that explains the sort of variability in languages that you have or, or the dictionaries that you have so you're you developed a system that would basically backfill missing uh definitions for using what machine the machine learning or not machine learning uh machine translated yeah using machine trans yeah using machine translator which right now i'm using uh microsoft microsoft's azure whatever they call it translator api have you looked into like what it would cost to get that human translated um i think i spend my translators i think 20 cents a word there's about 200,000 entries in in there <laughs> plus yeah 200,000 Japanese words each of which has a definition which 10 to 20 30 words per definition I don't know so there's some math to do there but very expensive yeah yeah okay no that makes sense so the answer is yes you've looked into it <laughs> yeah you've done the math <laughs> so I uh so I take the approach of I have the entire UI of the app uh, professionally translated. And then the definitions, um, I just use this backfilling machine uh, translation. This episode of Launched is brought to you by Kaleidoscope 4. After months of hard work, the Kaleidoscope team is proud to release the latest version of the world's best comparison and merge tool for the Mac. The new version keeps Kaleidoscope as intuitive as possible while adding major new capabilities and modernizing many aspects of the app. Here are some of the things you'll find in Kaleidoscope 4. Syntax coloring for all common markup and programming languages with three themes to choose from. 
It might seem like a subtle change, but once you see it, there's no going back. A new command to create a merge from any text comparison. This is a game changer that enables free editing of any comparison by moving the edited content into a separate destination that can be saved. There's also powerful new text filters that can clean up your comparison and hide differences that are not relevant to the task, like timestamps or object addresses. Go ahead and download the app and give Kaleidoscope 4 a thorough evaluation. There's a fresh 14-day trial period for everyone. Subscriptions start at $8 a month on a yearly plan. If you bought a license to Kaleidoscope 3, you'll get a special discount on the first year. Go to kaleidoscope.app to download now and use the coupon code LAUNCHED to get a 10% discount for the first year. That's L-A-U-N-C-H-E-D to get a 10% discount for the first year. Big thanks to Kaleidoscope for sponsoring this episode of Launched. What was your thinking with going into different languages? Were you kind of, was the fact that China, you know, kind of took off like it was, was that sort of your proof of concept that there's, there's interest in different markets? And so you're sort of almost hunting around for other markets that might also be interested? Yeah, I mean, I think it was... Um... If I'm, I think it was originally, hey, if I'm going to go through all this work to set up all this infrastructure, do all the, you know, string conversion stuff, get a tran, get professional translators. If I'm going to go through all this for Chinese, I may as well, you know, get some more value out of that. Uh, how much work could it be to just add a couple? Yeah, lines, you know, right. Like, <laughs> I mean, there's probably some truth to that, right? The cost per yeah. language is probably still a lot smaller than the cost for the infrastructure, the one-off infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, the like marginal cost is low compared to the upfront, you know, investment in, in getting everything set up. So, um, and I wanted to make sure I was setting it up in a way that wasn't specific to Chinese that like, I wanted to make sure everything I was doing could easily expand to new languages. Right. So, um, and I also had been looking at this database that had, yes, English as the primary language, but had like 10 other languages that it had data for, and it seemed like a shame to make this app, you know, English only when there's all this great data there. Yeah. So, um, and I think that's how I picked the initial languages was basically which languages have the, have most, the coverage. most data in that. Yeah. Database. And I think German was the top one. So, so how did that go? Did, did, do you get much of a user base in those other languages? Yeah, it was slow. Um, and China was definitely the big for initial thing, but today I think Germany uh, might be my second largest, uh, market now. It's interesting. Like, you know, the China one worked because you sort of had a organic, you know, marketing event, I guess, but just turning on, I now support this language doesn't mean that all those people are going to know. So like how you said it was slow. It sounds like I'm imagining you, either you just kind of had to wait for something organic to happen or you tried things to try and enter those markets. Mostly just waiting for something organic to happen, which, yeah, I think I was struggling enough with marketing in English that like, that's the thing. Like I I don't even know. I have no clue like what that would be other than hoping for some of those app store features, you know, or something like that. Um, I, I, I don't know. And fortunately, you know, I, I feel like like in Germany, for example, a lot of people speak English in addition to German. So I think they yeah. have access to a lot of the marketing that goes on in, in English. And if they're looking for something, they might be search, you know, searching English. So like I think there was one um, 
I think I actually got one review on a site that was a German, um, I feel like it was a German site, but it was written in English or something. There's something where I ended up, I think I got one review that might have helped me with the German market a little bit. But overall, I think it was pretty much entirely just word of mouth. And that took years, basically. I think I launched the localization in 2017 or something, like six years ago. And it was just really slow and steady growth. Have you have you found any specific marketing, or not even just marketing, but ha- have there been any specific events that have worked for you other than you know this the, that first chinese uh sort of pop from somebody talking about it on that website yeah um i mean i'll say like i've never gotten an apple feature um i like i think if i look back in the history there was like a week where i was on a couple watts hot lists or something but it's like, yeah like when nothing, there was a new update or something yeah but like nothing really serious um I've never gotten really a feature in any significant, like, like any of the Apple tech press or anything like that. Or, um, and I think it's maybe just this too niche, like Japanese. It's the, it's the struggle, like the overlap between, you know, Apple enthusiast, uh, and your market isn't necessarily that big. So it's, it's always hard. Like, you know, on, if you listen to shows like this or, or, you know, other well-known podcasts or whatever. It's kind of like, it must be frustrating when it's like, oh yeah, like you make friends with these people at, you know, nine to five or whatever. And then if you can get a feature, it makes a big deal. And it's like, it's a lot harder. I always, I always go back to the same well of talking about Curtis with slopes where it's like, those are just totally different markets and you have to kind of figure out how to find those people. Um, yeah. Well, and it's tricky too, because there's not like, japanese learners monthly magazine or something either like right there's just i i think what i there are communities though right there are communities and i think i've done a bad job of tapping into them i think i targeted um like the learn japanese subreddit a lot Mm. um oh like running ads no ads on reddit are I think they're really expensive or something. I kind of remember it being... You know, I've never actually thought about that. Yeah, you'd think the fact that you can target communities would help, but maybe that's why they're expensive. No, I mean, I've tried to just be engaged there, but it's really hard because they are, like, Redditors are, like, super um, uh, tuned into if you're trying to sell them something. Yes. And I find that community is also, like, really against anything paid. Like, they just want free stuff. And if you you have a price tag, you're just trying to screw them. Like... Yeah, because so, what percentage of that community is students? Yeah, probably. You know what I mean? Lot, it probably sets yeah. the tone. And if you're not, you were probably learning it initially as a student. So it kind of creates an atmosphere of like more freemium tools, like probably a higher tolerance to like spammy ad filled kind of stuff. Just again, because of the kind of market. Well, and then the other thing is, I feel like with Nihongo, one of the things I really aimed for was like, accessibility in the sense of like not having it be overly technical Mm. um and and i mean that maybe talking specifically about i mean part of it is like okay let's make it really easy to make flashcards right like make it so that you don't have to think about how to you know write a thing or or import from some quiz you know import from some shared thing or um and also the spaced repetition system that i use like there's very few configuration options i just try to like have a point of view about how i think you are going to succeed at learning Japanese. And I do some things, but but that means there's not a lot of customization in how it works. And it's much more like 
here's the path that I think you should take. And right. um, and one of the reasons I can do that is because there's this app called Anki, which has been around forever. It was originally a desktop app before it was on mobile. Um, and it's a really powerful flash spaced repetition flashcard tool um, with tons of customizations and all the flashcards you can embed audio in. You can like put HTML in so you can make them display whatever you want. You can tweak all the parameters of how the spaced repetition algorithm works, um, which actually I think I didn't actually explain what spaced repetition is. Spaced repetition is like um, basically a system where you have a flashcard and uh, it, 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 it keeps track of when the right time to show you a flashcard again. Mm. So you have a big pile, you've learned a thousand words, and every day it'll pick, okay, these are the, the 10 that you should study today. And then if you say, okay, I got that, it ends up pushing it out further um, and makes the interval to the next time that you see it even further. Right. And if you mark it wrong, then it's saying like, okay, I'll show that to you again soon More often. So you can see it. Yeah. So this all existed before Nihongo, but was kind of, there was a barrier to entry and a, a steep learning curve to it. Um, and so part of my goal with Nihongo was making it, okay, let's do spaced repetition. But like, instead of having you track intervals, I have like levels. You just have level one, two, three, four, five, you know, and like try to make it understandable where as you swipe the card, it like animates the little progress bar on their level filling up and like trying to make it a lot more approachable. Um, yeah. But the Reddit community is more into the like Anki, like serious customization yep. stuff like that. So it's kind of like it's not a perfect, even within my little niche, it's not a perfect fit <laughs> to my niche. Yeah. Like, uh, you are probably in the, you've ended up building an entire app for this. So like you <laughs> naturally ended up in, are like in those types of communities, right? Whereas yeah, yeah, exactly. the, the ones who your app is probably pretty well targeted for are not necessarily the group that you probably interacted with the most. They're probably more like in Facebook or WhatsApp groups or what other, uh, whatever other areas yeah, yeah. of uh, communities have sort of formed up. Yeah, and that's one thing where I feel like I just haven't done a great job figuring that out either. Um, and I know there's lots of, like, YouTubers that are doing Japanese learning. I feel like I should be getting into that more. But, um, but yeah, I feel like the moments that I have had success and that have been big for me have been... Um, uh, I mean, I think... Yeah, the language, adding languages has been big. The China thing was big. I feel like the growth in downloads has just been really organic, I guess. I don't feel like there have been lots of big spikes in that. The spikes I have seen have been in like actual conversions to paying users, which I think there have been a few specific events like adding one of the first ones was adding audio to the app. Um was not something that I was super like and by this I mean basically I initially added just text to speech, tap a button to okay. pronounce the a word. And yeah. this was behind the paywall. And that drew a ton a ton of new um, purchasers, like a ton of new people to the pro version. Um, to the point where I actually remember getting some... Uh, it was funny because I got some support email at one point that was like, just complaining about how... I mean, it was complaining about the fact that the um, clippings feature, the one that like tokenizes the text and then pulls things out complaining that that was paid like why why are you charging for this like i get audio but why are you charging for this like text feature and it's like the audio was literally like yeah. a one line api call to apple to speak the text and this this token this you know clippings feature 
I did like natural language processing research <laughs> and like <laughs> spent months developing. So it's like Yeah, it always um, makes me think about the uh oh, I wish I could remember the phrase off the top of my head, but there's there's some phrase about when you're designing uh paywalls and and what features go in what bucket, how it's like you have to think about it from a user perspective and not your perspective. Like we we always put those into buckets based on what's hard. And yeah. you know, the thing that's really easy the perceived value of those is completely unrelated to how much effort goes into it on your end, especially when it's something like, you know, text to speech is hard. It's just, you didn't have to develop it, but from a user's perspective, you know, it doesn't matter. It's like the, you know, when the value is being piggybacked off of a framework or, or an API that somebody else built, the user doesn't know or care that that's the case. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So totally true. Yeah, it's kind of funny. <laughs> it's funny to think about, but yeah, that's a good reminder. Yeah, so that was a big one. That was a big jump for me. Um, switching to subscriptions. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. You so you have switched to subscriptions. Yeah, I switched. What, what drove you for that? To that. Um, experimentation mostly. I was curious to see if it would. I mean, I was looking for ways at the time to get myself to the point where I could, you know, quit my job to focus on it. Um, and I guess, yeah, I guess I haven't gotten to that part of like my career path story, which was um, in 2018, I left Box um, to go full time on Nihongo. Um, so I think it was actually in January of 2018, maybe I think is when it was that I switched to subscriptions. And part of it was like, let me get this in. I'd rather do this experiment now before I'm trying to rely on this for my yeah, yeah. living expenses. Um, do this now and then I can undo it if I need to or whatever. Um, but it ended up being a really good, yeah, really good shift for me. Um, both just in pure, I think I made, you know, more money from it, but also just realigning, um, where I was incentivized to spend my time. Um, when it was a one-time purchase is kind of like once they made that purchase, there was no way I could make any more money from them. Right. Um, I wasn't like there wasn't a direct incentive to like keep on improving those paid features or um, anything like that. There was much more incentive towards like driving, getting more people driven to that uh, purchase page and making that initial purchase. Um, But that's not the part of all of this that I enjoy. Like the part I really enjoy is developing those awesome features that, you know, making making those better and the ones that I'm using every day, which are some of those pro features, you know. So when making those pro features and putting on an update that improves them um, when that directly, you know, decreases my churn. And, for, you know, um, that's if I can feel justified in myself and saying, OK, well, actually, you know, this is for the business. I'm yeah. I'm working on this cool new feature for the business. You know, like, <laughs> that's pretty great. Were you uh, was your was that switch basically just taking the same uh, paywall gate and moving it to a subscription instead of a one time in at purchase or did you change where things lied as far as features go? Um, at the time I just kept it exactly as it was. And that was kind of the scientist in me, like the, yeah. I want to, you know, hold, hold all the um, variables, you know, steady and, and control all the variables except for just what is the subscription versus in time, one time in at purchase. How did that, um, how did that go? You said it was about a year and a half after you switched was when you could go full time. How long did it? How long did it take to r- get a read on how that switch went? 
because I'm like in the midst of it right now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I wasn't anticipating necessarily, although if I had thought about it, I probably would have, is just like how much longer it takes to to get a read on the situation. Because it's like, yeah. especially, uh, I guess I'll ask too if you like, if it was monthly or annual or both, but the annuals in particular, it's like, I'm going to have to wait an entire year before I get literally any data on what the churn on that is. And so it's kind of, it's kind of strange sitting here right now and especially post launch because I had kind of a splashy launch. Uh, you know, the churn is, is obviously higher after that because you got a lot more people to just try it out during that moment. And so it's kind of, I'm kind of in like this weird spot where I'm like, I don't, I don't feel like I have an understanding of where the state of the business is. And it kind of feels weird in a way that it wasn't with paid up front because you know, <laughs> everything was clear. You either got a sale or you didn't. And then that was the yeah. end of the story. Yeah. And I don't have good news for you. I think it takes a long time to really <laughs> get a sense of it. Um, I think the other thing that happened to me is I got people and maybe this happened to you too, that I initially just switched from the one-time minute purchase to a monthly or yearly subscription. And I got people that really wanted a lifetime option. Um, yeah. I know enough people have said they recommend doing that, that I went ahead and did it despite yeah. kind of the popular opinion, I feel like being to never, ever do this, but the general, just, I'm curious if this has borne out for you, but the, the argument that I've heard from some people I really trust that made a lot of sense to me is like, uh, if you price it at around, you know, three ish years, depending on, you know, your situation, mo like m- if your churn is lower than that, then you're going to be in a really good spot with the rest of your business. And so you're fine. But most likely that's around when, you know, you'd be expecting a lot of people to churn anyway. And so it's not as much of a like drag on your business as maybe you fear it will be. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that's basically been how I felt about it is like, you know what, if people are giving me, uh, you know, three years worth of income from it, then I'm happy with that, you know? Yeah. Cause it helps a lot right now. Like right now, when I look at my numbers, that's helping with the sort of that initial, like, Oh my God, everything's way lower than it would have been. Um, those, those lifetimes kind of keep it up in that more normal range. Well, and I think the other thing that I did was, you know, I had an $8 in app purchase going into the, my switch transition or to subscriptions, which I turned into a, $2 a month or $20 a year um, monthly annual split. And so then when I went to add lifetime a few months later, I put it at 50 bucks. And so all of a sudden I'm like, okay, well now somebody that three months ago would have given me $8, I'm now getting $50 from like, I can't complain about that. Like, you know, um, so I mean, part of, I think that was part of maybe what made the lifetime thing a lot easier to swallow too, is because I was like, well, I'm making way more than I was off the you know the same purchase right exactly yeah yeah and people felt good about it they wanted to pay me the 50 bucks right like um so that that was part of it too like i didn't include it initially and people actually were just like hey i really want to to give you that so um yeah so but i think i and the, the having the lifetime and having it be a lot more than i was getting before from just the um single in app purchase uh, made that transition a lot less scary too, because it felt like I could see pretty quickly 
getting back up to the point where I had the same income that I had before the subscription switch. Yeah. Yeah. I think the stories that I used to always hear were, I think during the initial phase of like, you know, people switching to subscriptions, uh, there was a, I think it was, there was a lot of companies that were like about to go bankrupt suddenly because, you know, they had just this huge user base pile that yeah. was starting to cost them more than that, you know, than it cost to run the business in the first place. And so it started scaring people a lot. And so I think most people didn't have lifetimes out of sort of principle, like this is bad. And the stories I always heard was like, you know, your first six months, maybe even your first full year, it's going to be really scary because you're going to make way less money. Um, but then, you know, it starts to like pay off as you kind of get the machine machinery going. And I feel like having that lifetime in the mix uh, offsets that a little bit. Yeah. And I think now I'm going to try to de-emphasize it. I think right now it's presented pretty equally to the monthly and annual subscriptions. I think I'll probably switch to something more like what um like flighty does i think pretty well where they like kind of default to the yearly but you have a button that says all plans and then you can see monthly or lifetime yeah that's what i ended up doing and we should clarify too uh i think maybe yours a little bit but but neither of our apps really have a major per user cost which definitely plays into yeah. the whether lifetime makes sense or not uh, i don't want yeah. <laughs> I, I can already hear people you know screaming at their podcast player like uh if you're like a weather app where you know the lifetime person you will literally lose money if they last more than five years or something lifetime probably doesn't make sense yeah um, that's totally a good point the only feature i have that i pay per user basically is um the ocr which i do through a google cloud api but um and I was really nervous about that as, at first, like, oh, man, I'm going to just like, what should I even offer this on the lifetime, you know, plan? Because I could lose so much money. But at the end of the day, it's just it's so cheap that it's yeah. it ended up not being a big deal. But well, and so, yeah. once so how many this was when did you say you switched it in 2018? So it's been I think it was 2018. Yeah, it's been quite a while. So you probably have a feeling on on your mix, too, because that's the other thing is like. If you have a healthy mix of subscribers with the lifetimes, uh, that risk is probably a lot lower. Yeah, I think basically I'm hovering right now around 50-50. Like I get 50% of my income from the lifetimes and 50 from subscriptions. You did eventually uh, switch to going full-time indie. Was that like you kind of crossed the magical threshold of, you know, this makes sense now? Or what was the story there? Um, it was more like I could see the threshold coming up and wanted to go try. So, and also had a bunch of savings from my, um, the, you know, acquisition, um, of subspace by box. Um, I had enough money kind of that I could had put, had put away there that I felt like I could go and take a leap and not have a job for a while. And, um, I basically gave myself a year of like, if, you know, I'll try this and see if I can, I can make, uh, make enough to live off of it. So that was 28, that was like fall of 2018. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm still here. It's like 2023 <laughs> and <laughs> um, still doing it. I would say I am still not quite to the point where I'm like completely living off of it. It's been still, I mean, it's been like, what does that mean? Five years and I'm still, still working towards it. But um, I basically got to the point where when Justin had a job too, 
we were good and not like living off of it. Now he went and got, is getting a PhD. So I kind of like him catching back up to that again. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I basically, yeah, but my transition was have enough savings to feel like I could, you know, give myself a go at it and, and felt like I had a path. Um, part of it too was because of the transition to, um, trials or, or sorry, to, um, subscriptions and, um, yeah, having some ideas on what marketing ideas I wanted to do or, or, or expansions to the app or whatever. Um, and I've kind of managed to keep on a positive trajectory since then. So it's, it's always been slow, steady growth for me. I've never had any like big, single big break, um, but a series of small things. Um, and, and I've just, you know, kept that since 2018, kind of kept it up. Nice, man. That's, I mean, it's probably feels like a grind, but it's also like inspiring to see, like you can keep grinding it out and keep, you know, moving up and moving up. Yeah. Yeah. It feels good. It feels, and it's, um, you know, good sort of goal to have, I guess this like goal of basically, I want to live off of this and have this be my full-time thing is, is good motivation. Um, I sort of think about, I always think about how once I hit that and feel really comfortable with the amount of money I'm making that I want to just like only do the features that I, you know, want to do for myself. Like I can kind of stop thinking about the like businessy side of it, but I feel like I also got to figure out how to make that uh still have purpose and still you know i was thinking about that after that deep dish talk from peter stein steinberger is that his name steinbrenner or, or, yeah steinbrenner. yeah that he was saying like he had this great success but kind of didn't have purpose in his life anymore and so i think about that a little bit of like okay yeah i do need to make sure that i can still you know have good purpose and and having that financial independence goal has been great for just having purpose and direction so, I mean, it's kind of like we were talking about earlier on too. It's like, uh, whether it's having some major business success or, you know, starting a business or, you know, taking the leap and going indie and now you're sitting, uh, in your apartment, you know, trying to build a games business or whatever. Like mm -hmm. there's a point where you catch, you know, the dog catches the tail and you're kind of like, Oh, that's what this is like you don't really know what the thing is until until you get there but but having having a goal in front of you is something that can you know be really helpful i feel like yeah absolutely before before we wrap up i also want to ask about um your i'm going to call it a spinoff app i don't know if that's a correct way of phrasing it but there's another app you have in the store called nihongo lessons what's what's the story there so the story there is um, last spring uh, there was so there's this guy named Adam Shapiro and he's been making this uh, Japanese learning program um, called Japanese Level Up for about 10 years, like about the same amount of time I've been working on Nihongo. Um, and I think it started as a blog and um, about like strategies for learning Japanese. And then he developed this whole set of Anki like of flashcards around Japanese. Um, and uh, it's the set of the core of it is 7,000 flashcards. Now that's each one introduces um, a new, uh, each one has a, an example sentence associated with it, introduces a single new word, everything else in the sentence you've learned before enters one new word or one new grammatical concept or something. Anyway, so he had developed this whole set of content 
but he decided he was done with it. Like he just wanted to move on with his life and kind of wasn't, was tired of supporting it and, um, and was just going to kind of shut the whole thing down. Um, but said, Hey, if there's anybody out there that, you know, might want to buy this, talk to me by the end of the month or something. So I basically couldn't really afford to actually buy his stuff outright, like buy his company or anything like that. But I talked to him and we ended up coming up with a deal where, um, we have just like a revenue share. And so he basically offered me this content. We do a revenue share. And so I built this new app around it called Nihongo Lessons. Um, it was really great because I kind of was looking at myself and realizing, hey, there's probably very few people in the world in a position to actually take this content and do something with it. Yeah. I have a user base that I can try and cross promote with. I have flashcards in my app already. So I kind of have the infrastructure for flashcards. Like I was, it was kind of a really good fit. So, um, so we made that deal. Um, that was last spring. And then I spent the summer developing the app, um, and launched it on December 1st. So, and it is kind of like a companion app or, you know, side app to Nihongo. Now I kind of market it as, um, yeah, a bit of a companion app that's a little bit more like the textbook to Japanese to uh, mm, Nihongo's yeah. dictionary. It's a little bit more teaching you um, Japanese. Right. It's more um, guided. Yeah, more guided content. And I knew for a long time I had like you know an entry in my roadmap for like guided content because I wanted something like that. But um, it was kind of too daunting to build that myself. So it was actually pretty awesome to just have somebody that hey they've like spent a decade building out a bunch of awesome guided content that fits really well and. I liked the philosophy of it. Um, he had like had everything professionally voice acted too. So um, like all the sentences are spoken out loud. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was a really great fit. We got along um, and so far it's been successful. It feels, you know, pretty good. Um, but yeah, that's how that came to be. Has that, like that almost feels like you know, one of the ways of reaching out to more customers for Nihongo too. Like in terms of if he's been doing this for that long, he probably has an audience that's not necessarily the same as your audience. Uh, have you, you mentioned cross promoting. Have you, have you been able to find any ways to kind of bring people from either side to the other? Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's been a great way to just introduce it to people that didn't know about Nihongo. Um, I, built sort of integration into Nihongo as part of it too. So basically there's like when you're looking at a flashcard in Nihongo lessons, there's a one one uh, button tap that takes you over to the dictionary entry for that word in Nihongo. Um, and if you don't have Nihongo installed, it, you know, nicely prompts you to explain about it and a link to the app store. So, so yeah, it's a nice new flow of users to Nihongo in that direction. And then from Nihongo, um, you know, I'm able to, as part of like, the series of prompts you see over the first couple days of using Nihongo and sort of the onboarding flow, it will tell you about Nihongo lessons. And I have like a discount on Nihongo lessons for people that have Nihongo installed, um, things like that. So, so yeah, it's like, or, or have, yeah, or have Nihongo pro rather, if they have the Nihongo pro subscription, they get, um, the discount on Nihongo lessons. So, um, yeah, I think it's opened up a whole bunch of new people that didn't know about Nihongo. It's really symbiotic. Yeah. Yeah, sure. that's awesome. Have you like are you able to see in your in your data like that that's moved the needle a little bit? Yeah. Um 
I mean, I definitely see it just in, it's like, a, it's an additional re- revenue stream, basically. An additional well, yeah, yeah, certainly for, on that one thing. That front. On the, like, Nihongo user side, I don't know if I've seen it, like, I don't see, like, a big bump from right when I... Right, it wasn't, like, a lessons. radical business shift. Yeah, but like I said, Nihongo is, the whole time has been just these this slow, steady progress of individual small events, and I think it definitely fits into that, of, like, I'm sure some of my continued growth that I've seen since last December is the result of this new marketing, you know, channel, basically. Yeah, man, that's really cool. Awesome. Well, uh, I was going to say we've been going for X amount of time, but, uh, I'll just, I'll just like self reveal it here. I, I cut you off in the middle of this to, uh, to snag tickets to, uh, the talk show live because I got a bunch of frantic texts. So I don't actually know how long we're at. We've actually been recording this episode, but it's definitely been quite a while. Um, yeah, I'm glad you before, got your tickets. <laughs> But uh, this is a very professional, uh, professional show that uh, we produce over here. Um, but, but before I let you go, I do want to ask you the question uh, I ask everybody to wrap the show up, which is what's a person or people out there that have inspired you that you'd recommend others check out? So I have two that I want to give. One is uh, Via Fairchild. Um, yeah. Gonna, so you went to Deep Dish Swift, so you saw her talk. She gave a really great talk on mentorship and um, in the iOS community. And uh, mentorship has been really super important to me. I mentioned earlier, you know, Big Fix and the people I worked with there. Um, I just had amazing mentors um, there that uh, I'll call it Mike Autumn in particular was just has like had such a huge impact on my career. So um, I really loved seeing her do that. And she's been through a lot um, and just uh, had a uh, gone through a lot of adversity. And um, I'm so glad that she's part of our community now. So um, I definitely think you should follow her um, if you're not already. Um, the other person... I wanted to mention was, uh, oh man, Andrew's, Andrew Jang, Jung. I'm, oh, um, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it either, but it's Z, it's Z, uh, C H A in, Z-H-E-N-G. I mean, there will be a link in this, in the show yeah. notes. Um, so he, we actually connected because, uh, he was building this photos app called find um, and he was doing OCR stuff. And so we kind of connected in some of the, because I did some OCR work in Nihongo. Um, but he is, uh, I think, a senior in high school. Oh, I had no idea he was that young. Yeah, he's a senior in high school. So he's posting about how oh, he's like working. He's basically in high school working on college applications. Um, he has a part time job at a fast food place at, um, and is doing incredible iOS stuff. Like, yeah, he's got this app find that's like feels like kind of the photos, like what you kind of want photos app to be like, it's kind of he just out apples apple, it feels like, <laughs> you know, um, with incredible animations. And he's just doing things with Swift UI that like, I didn't know were possible. Um, he's open sourcing a ton of it too. Um, so that's really, really cool. Um, and yeah, and he's doing it when he's like, 18 years old and has a part time job. And it's yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. So uh, you should all definitely check out all the work that he's doing. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Like I did, I didn't know his backstory at all, but I knew immediately who you were talking about. I knew the like cat uh, profile. Yeah, picture. little Sailor Moon cat, right? Yeah, because I see it all the time associated with these like cool UI animation videos or little things. But I didn't, I didn't know the story there. So man, yeah, that's awesome. That's a good one. Yeah. 
Cool. Well, uh, I guess we can go ahead. We can go ahead and wrap up. Uh, where can people find you and your work? Um, easiest way is I'm on Twitter at Chris Vaselli, uh, or on Mastodon at Chris Vaselli at mstdn.social. <laughs> um, and, uh, if you want to check out my app, it's, uh, it'll be in the show notes, nihongo-app.com, but. <laughs> and yeah, Nihongo on the app store, uh, as well. Yeah. Yep. Thanks for listening. This episode was edited by Jonathan Ruiz. If you'd like to discuss the show, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Chucky C or tweet the show directly at launched.fm. I'd really appreciate a rating or review in your podcast app of choice. And you can find show notes and more at launched.fm.com. <laughs>